This is a Village Soundcast Network original production. Welcome to Turning a New Leaf, where we discuss the changing face of Canada as it prepares to legalize and regulate recreational cannabis across the country. Turning a New Leaf is produced by the Village Soundcast Network, and I'm your host, Sean King. Enjoy. Okay, on today's show, we're welcoming Andrew Murray. Andrew is the CEO of Mad Canada. So I want to take a minute to set up uh, some of the background for Andrew because it's a pretty impressive bio. So he's been the uh, CEO of Mad Canada uh, since 1997, so about 21 years. And the responsibilities of that role include managing the national office, facilitating Mad Canada's public policy agenda, national programs, victim services, etc., Andrew's conducted hundreds of presentations on impaired driving uh, to elected members of government, government staff, police, the list goes on. He's also provided leadership to Mad Canada in responding to the federal government's legalization of recreational cannabis. And of course, that's why Andrew's here today. I had the pleasure of meeting Andrew in a meeting a few weeks ago. And uh, as I was listening to him talk about uh, his knowledge and and where things stand related to cannabis legalization, of course, I was very impressed. And I think within seconds of the meeting ending, uh, jumped over the desk and asked him to be a guest. So I'm happy to, uh, to welcome Andrew to the show and uh, and glad to have you here. Are you ready for this? I'm ready, Sean. <laughs> okay. So uh, I don't know how you feel about this, but I will I will admit right away that I was surprised that the CEO of Mad Canada was a man, uh, and not to make the show about gender. Uh, but uh, how have you heard that before? Yeah, sure. I've heard it over the years. Um, they're quite surprised when they see the CEO, but. The we have two uh, executive roles within Mad Canada. The first one's the national president, and she is always a female and always uh, someone who has lost someone to impaired driving. Mm-hmm. So she provides the personal pers- perspective side of the organization, and uh, my role is primary you know, the policy, what the research says, here how here's how you can save the most lives. And so it, it actually is a very dynamic uh, combination to kind of hear someone who's lost someone, but in combination with what the organization does is how we can eliminate a lot of those deaths and injuries. And hopefully one day, um, we're not talking about impaired driving as a social justice issue anymore. Right. Yeah. Good. Good point. And that that actually leads me right into where kind of I wanted to go. And and that is, I guess, in a general sense, you kind of started to do it there just now. But in a general sense, can you describe to me kind of the role of Mad Canada? And 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 I think part of the reason I I wanted to hear that from you was because. I think I was a little bit surprised initially, but then, of course, it made total sense to me, uh, the, the role that MAD plays in the legalization of cannabis. Uh, so can you start with that? Yeah, sure. So we, what we're trying to do is deter people from driving impaired in the first place, whether that be from alcohol, cannabis, or any other combination of drugs and alcohol. And so... 
you know, we're not people would perceive our organization to be about penalties and throwing away the key. And we realized long ago that dealing with this issue just as a a sanction or within the judicial system, we're never going to resolve the problem. It's like the tail wagging the dog. So we had to take a very proactive approach. And, you know, a lot of people who have been impacted by impaired driving join our organization, help us, you know, get that right. message out there. But there's there's others that have been impacted and don't agree with that philosophy of MAD. And that's fine. We support them and uh, they're welcome to that different opinion. And so when our when we started to focus on legalization of cannabis, we wanted to kind of learn from what happened in the United States, learn what we've known globally, and start to apply that logic to it. Because the government decided to legalize cannabis. That wasn't up for debate anymore. Right. So how could we reduce impaired driving? And my guess would be that you, meaning the organization, has been probably thinking about that long before uh, the government decided to legalize. Is that fair to say? Yeah, so we, it was funny, I was looking at a uh, presentation I had done to our own internal members back in 2015, and we talked about threats, and two of them were the expanding medical marijuana program and legalization of cannabis, and so it wasn't too much longer that those things came to reality. Yeah. Um so you you just mentioned I'm curious about this the idea that some people don't agree with the philosophy of mad uh I'm a little surprised by that because I, I my my perception uh would be that the the motivations behind mad are all positive no is that not true Well like you know for example there there's a, a number of people feel that by giving longer uh, minimum mandatory sentences, you can solve the problem of impaired driving, and that's just not the case. Oh, I see. So we wouldn't align ourselves with those kinds of policies, even though, you know, at first glance, they might sound something that MAD would agree with and something that victims of impaired driving would agree with. But, you know, when we explain you know, the rationale, why we don't support those type of things, and, you know, they'd actually cause more harm than good, then people come around. But not everyone. And Mm -hmm. that's why, you know, it's not just because you're a victim of impaired driving doesn't mean you have to join the organization. I mean, we're there uh, for that support, and, and not always our policies um, are supported by all, but we can separate those two. We can support people who have been impacted and without them having to support, you know, our public policies. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I have to admit that I kind of forgotten the idea that the people that get involved, and I think, and correct me if I'm wrong, that part of the reason Mad Canada started had to do with uh, victims of impaired driving, whether that was, you know, people who had passed or, or were, were a part of that in some way. Is that true? Yeah, that's absolutely true. So, you know, the it's it's a true grassroots movement because it started around, you know, the phrase of kitchen tables where, you know, people that were victimized were upset and they didn't feel that, 
you know, anybody cared that there wasn't support by elected officials. The media didn't seem to be, you know, uh, covering it. And, and if you think back, uh, you know, 30, 30, 40 years ago, I mean, there was social jokes about driving impaired and that, that was quite acceptable one for the road, you know, like, you, you know, we've grown beyond that. But you've got to kind of credit, you know, the people that came before us because, you know, they had to deal with a much more difficult situation of non-public acceptance where today I don't think you'd find anybody that's willing to admit publicly that they think it's okay to drink and drive and put others at risk. Yeah, no, I I, I agree with that. And now how many years... I mean, do you think that that's taken for people to ex- accept the idea that it's unacceptable? I mean, I remember even as a kid, you know, the idea of drinking and driving. I mean, I don't know if I would go so far as to say it was like, uh, I don't know what the word I'm looking for, not cool, or but but it was very kind of like nonchalant. It's like, yeah, we have been drinking. I'm going to drive home now. Didn't seem like a big deal, almost like seatbelts, you know, Um where like, uh, as you're saying now, it's like people just, if you admitted that you would be publicly shamed almost. How many years has that taken? Well, um, when I first started, um, you know, so we're going back 20 plus years, um, you know, there was a fair amount of pushback on anything we did, you know, that first five to 10 years that, you know, it's my right to drive, you know, if I've had a few beers and I mean, they always underestimated or were willing to admit how much they drank, but, um, yeah, it, it was a tough push. And, and, you know, especially amongst males, you know, it was like, who do you think you are? You know, there was a lot of hatred, like some of the, the, the vitriol we used to get in emails and letters was, you know, you shoot your head today, but it took a generation to yeah. kind of say not acceptable. Government got involved. You know, media has been just a tremendous support. And, you know, all those families and people that have lost someone that, you know, bear their heart, bear these horrible stories, you know, and um, it took effect and, and it's changed, but it, it took a couple of generations. And yeah. now, You know, we're talking where we're having generations that it's zero tolerance and and those type of rules and and they've worked. And so, you know, the the deaths have, you know, dramatically fallen. Like, we'd like to see them fall further, but, you know, that's, that's taken 20 plus years of really hard you know, slugging to get to the point where we're at today where it's not accepted in any kind of environment or condition. Yeah. Yeah, I, I agree. I mean, it has taken a long time, but it's definitely it's definitely the way it feels now and yet and now here we are about to um now I say about to and I don't know, you know, I think that driving under the influence of cannabis has maybe been around longer than anyone w- might like to admit, but here we are about to legalize a substance and I think uh, we were talking about this a little bit in the meeting a few weeks back where there is this perception that driving under the influence of marijuana is somehow less dangerous or more acceptable than it is with alcohol. And and true or not, there seems to be some information that suggests that's how people feel. I mean, how, how do you face that? Well, first of all, we hope that 
it doesn't take us as long with cannabis to figure it out as it did with alcohol. Mm-hmm. So we're hoping that we can bridge some of our learnings from alcohol, bring them over to the cannabis side. But cannabis is a very different drug than alcohol. Um, it has to be approached in a very different way. Um, because the things that it impacts and for how long it impacts is very different from alcohol. Mm-hmm. Now, all those things disappear when you mix the two. Right. Um, because again, alcohol comes the dominant drug and the dominant impairing substance. But if you're just dealing with cannabis, then you need to kind of have a different type of approach. And, and that's one of the things I'm proud of our organization that we've had. We want to be a a truth broker in the process to be able to say, if you're going to use cannabis and you're thinking of driving, here's some things that you should think about before doing that. And one of the key pieces is how long you wait, which is a very different story from alcohol where you basically start drinking, you need to sit out the night, let the alcohol dissipate from the body. But with cannabis, you know, as long as you're a, consistent user, you're not a new user, you haven't overdone it, you haven't eaten it, and you haven't mixed it with alcohol, a lot of conditions there. But, you know, you should be able to drive four hours later or, you know, maybe a little longer if you're still feeling the effects. But cannabis users kind of know when they've come down from that high and they can, you know, function again. And one of those functional things is driving. And so I think just telling people not to do it is not going to have any kind of, you know, credibility with people who use cannabis. Yeah. And so I guess that begs the question then of who we're talking to. And I know provinces all over the country are are probably gearing up with their messaging to the public and no doubt, um, you know, driving under the influence of cannabis is going to be part of that messaging. And, and I think that, um, Part of that equation, I guess, is who are you speaking to? And, and you know, as you say, you point out now, a user might understand. Um, it even sounds kind of crazy to say it out loud, uh, you know, that perhaps after four hours, you're, you're, you're okay. But a non-user would have no sense of that. Someone, a new user, let's say, someone who it's now legal, I'm going to try this. So I would think we'd have to be incredibly careful about how these messages get out, Yeah. Yeah, yeah, you have to, you know, carefully explain it. And, you know, sometimes when people see some of the information we're using now and they see four hours, they, you know, they freak out on us and kind of say, <laughs> what, what are you doing, Matt? You know, are you crazy? Well, and, and you kind of go, well, there's conditions on that. And obviously, if the person, you know, is a new user, never used cannabis, or they're coming back after 30 years of never using it before, and we know the potency is right through the roof compared to what it was in the 70s. And so some of the dialogue in the cannabis world is go go slow, go low. And so what they mean is introduce yourself very slowly to it and have a very low THC content in it so that you can kind of try to figure out, is this something, A, you want to do, and B, find that right level for you. And what we're saying is once you do all that and you come a fairly, whether you're recreational or use it, you know, on a daily basis, you know, then 
you know, you can start to kind of look at what activities you shouldn't be doing and what can you participate in. And it's in some of them, you might have to wait some time. And so, but on the other hand, if you have a chronic user who's using all the time uh, for whatever reason, um, they might not ever be able to drive again because they can't bring their THC level down below what the government has decided right. um, are criminal levels. And so you need, like, you know, we don't know, like, alcoholics have exemptions for driving. We, you know, we've always said certain pharmaceutical drugs you shouldn't be driving under. So cannabis fits into that same category. Yeah. Yeah. That's interesting. I mean, first of all, I, I, I'm with you. Like, I mean, the, I was wondering about that when you were saying that, you know, after four hours, it's okay to drive and thinking about how even again, back to the provinces and their messages to, to the general public, I can't imagine anyone being okay conveying that message versus saying, look, if you're going to use, just don't, just don't drive. And, and, and my sense is that's where, where messaging will go. But, but getting back to the, the THC levels, I, I saw something on the news last week and it was a report. It was a discussion with someone talking about the idea of um, driving convictions increasing uh, once things go legal and the new laws kick in. And the theory in this, in this conversation was, that depending on how things are tested, and we'll come back to that shortly, um, if if the simple test is there's THC in your system, and of course there will be a line drawn in the sand as to what how what that unit of measurement is, um, that THC hangs around for a while, and and depending on how that's measured, someone could be pulled over, and if there's reasonable belief that they should be tested for THC, could have THC in their system but was from a few days ago or a week ago, and yet they may still be able to be charged for that. Now, I, I mean, I don't know if that's true, but that was certainly an angle I had not considered and thought, whoa, I wonder I wonder about that. And have, have you had to consider that yet? Has that been a part of your discussions? Well, one of the things is, you know, I can tell you, you know, that's one of the myths out there um, that's very disturbing because it's not true. Mm-hmm. So the levels that these devices would be set at, so there's two predominant things. It's quite high. So if you fail that roadside test, you know, the oral fluid test, which police will use once, you know, Bill C-46 passes the Senate, you have used in the last couple hours and, you, and you've gotten in the vehicle shortly after using. So that's what it takes to fail one of those tests. So they you know, set it so high enough you, so that that's, that's, right. that's what they can tell. Yeah. And, in, in, you know, when I analyze this from a pure road safety point of view, I know why they've set it so high Yeah, to catch only those people that are really impaired is to, um, you know, make sure that um, people that, um, you know, haven't used in the last three or four hours are not going to get picked up in that way. So they're only picking up the irresponsible users of cannabis who get behind the wheel shortly after consuming. So that's what the test. I think there'll be a day in the future where we fight to bring that level down because it's too high and too many people are being missed. But that that's not this is not time to fight that battle. Yeah. But even a chronic person who uses daily at very high levels, okay, 24 hours later, okay, um, their 
nanogram level, maximum nanogram level. This is, you know, of all the people, this is less than 10% of these chronic users where, you know, the highest level was nine, okay? Nine yeah. nanograms. Mm-hmm. The, the cutoff level for driving and demand for a blood test is 25. Wow. So there's no, there's no chance. So <laughs> if somebody says, I, oh, no, 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 this is from a week ago. They're lying. Oh, okay? oh that's, so that's it's why it's like, set. That's why yeah, it's set that high. Set, yeah. Okay. And and the other thing is, like, you know, it's like the person with alcohol gets charged, you know, with being over 80. They'll say, I want to have a couple of drinks. Well, either you're lying or those were <laughs> massive size of a drink. And it's the same thing going to be for cannabis. Right. So, okay. um, you know, and the same is the... The meth and cocaine levels are very high, but it's to avoid any challenges of the device that would fit that scenario that you introduce that it's not current use. Anybody charged, it will be because of current use. Right. And like who decides that, who's been involved in deciding what that unit, that amount needed to be? So there's a scientific committee. um, It's called the Drugs and Driving Committee. That's accountable to the Attorney General of Canada. And they used, they tested these devices. They looked at the accuracy. They looked at the reliability of them. They did human subject testing. They did testing of, you know, lab samples to compare. And so, you know, these devices can measure as low as five nanograms, you know, but they wanted to get it to a level that they were only picking up the most severe impaired people. And if there was a challenge of these devices, the likelihood, the science behind those devices at that level, the challenge would not succeed. Yeah. You'd have no way of arguing it. No, I guess that's a tough balance, right? I mean, the, the balance between setting it high enough that it can't be debated, but then also maybe too high that to reach that level, like, I, I guess the risk in that is that people go, oh, well, I'm fine. I mean, I, I'm not going to get busted because there's no way I'm going to be nine or whatever it is. Uh, I mean, is that well? Is yeah, that a fear? A, they make the yeah, it is, and it's a fear with alcohol. So, um, you know, so it, it's kind of one of those things that you know, there's, you know, this will be debated. You know, once it's legalized yeah. and we have all these new laws, that doesn't mean that those laws are permanently in place that uh, if they find and uh, that, you know, the police experience is saying, you know, Hey, we tested these people. We thought they were high. You know, they might have provisions provincially to remove their license for 24 hours, but they certainly can't charge them criminally with an offense. So, you know, there's going to be things that uh, will come down the road. Like when alcohol started, uh, the blood alcohol allowable level was 0.15. And when we think about that today, we go, we'll be crazy. (laughs) Um, But, you know, it was because the devices weren't as, you know, good as they are today. And, you know, the oral fluid devices that are going to be used, um, 10 years from now or five years from now, that technology is going to be way better. And so then you can kind of say, you know, the science committee, the drugs and driving committee can kind of say, okay, we've reviewed the levels. We think they're too high. 
we've reviewed the technology and we're fairly convinced that the best thing for road safety is to bring that level down. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I, it seems to be a bit of a theme for the whole thing. You know, this idea that let's 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 set the stage with some boundaries, see how things go, and adjust accordingly. And and we've been talking about this device, but you and I know what we're talking about, but we haven't actually described uh, what that device is for anyone listening. So can we? Can you maybe talk a bit more about about that device? So what it is, is is basically, you know, if an officer has reasonable suspicion that you've been using a drug, um, they can ask you to provide an oral fluid sample. So you would basically stick your tongue out, they would swab your tongue, they would take that swab sample, put it into a device, you know, after about three to five minutes, that device would give a reading of, you know, uh, are you on a drug and what level you're at in that drug? So meaning that are you above 25 nanograms? Because then, you know, for marijuana, it'd come up as a fail. It wouldn't give a, an exact, you know, measurement, but it would say right. you're above that level. And then that gives the police the ability to make a demand for a blood test. And then that blood test determines the level exactly that's in your blood. Um, you have a right to counsel before that blood test is given um, or taken, sorry. Yeah. And then, you know, if you're above the, they have three conditions in the criminal code. If you're above five nanograms, it's a, in blood, it's equivalent to a criminal code charge. So you'll be charged criminally. Right. If you're above two nanograms but below five, they'll charge you with what is a summary offense. So it's still a criminal offense, but it's just a thousand dollar fine. Right. And then if you're above two point five nanograms and above zero five blood alcohol concentration, you again will be charged with a criminal offense. So right. You know, we, that's the one thing I really like that the federal government has done is because we know a lot of people mix, especially young people, yeah. and there is an offense to catch people. And as you notice, the, the 05 level is quite a bit lower than the current criminal level of 08. So it's the combination of a low dosage of cannabis and oh. a low dosage of alcohol is going to result because the research clearly shows even, you know, small amounts of both of those in combination is a very deadly combination. Yeah, it's, yeah, there's a whole new list of things going on there. Wow. And, and so any of these charges, any of the three that you just described, though, are problematic. I mean, you, you suggested it's just a $1,000 fine, but correct me if I'm wrong, that's the kind of thing that, you know, you're not getting into the States. Is that, is that fair? Yeah, in, but it, like a summary offense, you know, doesn't have the restrictions that a criminal code offense. So summary offense, there's no fingerprints taken, you know, so you right. can basically travel. It's kind of a slap on the wrist. Um, I see. Okay. You know, but, but it's still a federal offense, but it, it, it is not, it's, it's what we would call like in a provincial thing, like a ticketing type of offense. Yeah. Um, but it's still there, it's still on your record. Um, and then, the provinces can bring offenses in below or on top of what the federal government does. So mm. 
you know, a province can remove your license, can impound your vehicle like they do for alcohol. They can do all those things for cannabis and other drugs right. as well. Do you think that the the you made a comment a second ago about if the, the police officer has reason to believe uh, that they, you know, suspicion, I think is the word you used, I'm not I'm sure. But what I'm getting at is it, some of this is left up to their judgment. So I'd have to think that there's a whole pile of training happening right now for police officers who are need to learn what that means. Because I, I would assume that there's risk in that too. Yeah, like... The, the 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 room for personal error, human error, I guess, in that judgment would be a concern, would it not? Well, not not so much because no. it is it's a pretty low threshold. You know, if they smell the cannabis, if they see cannabis, you know, anything that you know doesn't mean to say you've used, but might lean you that you might have been using recently. Yeah, then they can make the demand. But the thing is. You know what the person, you know, if they haven't been used, the officer makes the demand, you pass the test, like you you don't fail it, then you go on. So there is a, even if the officer makes a mistake, you know, for whatever reason, you know, the person at roadside is protected by the test because if they haven't Mm. used, they're going to pass that test and they're going to be on their way. So, um, so, you know, and it's a... And then there's even if they fail that one, there's still a blood because the the oral fluid just gives the right to demand blood. You can't be convicted on the oral fluid test. It's only the blood. So there really is the suspicion. You fail the roadside and then you got to get above those thresholds in blood before a charge can be laid. So it really lends you know, favorably to the driver rather than the system. Okay, so there's some protection in there both ways, I guess. Absolutely. And, and, you know, those protections are there for alcohol. They're there for drugs as well. Mm -hmm. I mean, there's no interest from groups like ourselves or the police to charge anybody um, that hasn't done you know, anything that's put others at risk. Yeah. Do you think that it will be easier to create the mindset, you know, the socially unacceptable idea of, of driving under the influence as it relates to cannabis because of the work that's been done uh, in the alcohol space? Uh, I think initially, no, because I think there's so many myths out there Mm -hmm. that, you know, I think a lot of people, that are, you know, pro-cannabis have gone out there and champion myths that, you know, cannabis doesn't, you know, they drive slower so they don't crash. Right. Um, You know, where you look at the evidence, it shows the majority of cannabis drivers charged with offenses are done because of speeding. So, you know, there's, there's a number of things that, you know, once we get legalized, once the system starts selling cannabis, then we got to kind of make sure that, you know, people are using it in a, you know, responsible, respectable way and not putting others at risk. And so I think once we get over that hump, we should be okay. It won't take as long as alcohol. Um, But I, I also think that, you know, as much as everybody, you know, has been the people that are supportive of cannabis, 
the one thing they draw the line is, you know, right from growers, you know, retailers and that is they don't want people driving impaired. So that's, we're not starting where, right. you know, we were 20 years ago with alcohol, everybody's saying it's not acceptable. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm curious about your response to this. Uh, and, and you just triggered me with the idea of the myths out there. Um, does it impair driving? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, you know, does it, um, impair at really, really low levels? No, but at the levels, uh, we're talking about, you know, where the federal government has set those thresholds, you know, five nanograms in blood and above. Yeah. You, you, you are a danger to yourself and others. Yeah. And, and I guess, cause I've heard some of the myths as well, including the one that you've, you've mentioned this idea that, well, I drive slower or whatever, but the, the one that I heard, um, well, I was going to say recently, it wasn't that recently. It's been a lot of talk about this in the last year, but this notion of your judgment being impaired and, and, you know, your reaction time. And these are the things that actually, um, you know, struck a chord with me when I heard that I'm like, yeah, I never quite thought of it that way. Cause you, you think about, uh, you know, impairment with alcohol, people driving too fast or whatever the case might be, but is, is all of that stuff, uh, impaired judgment, reaction time, all that stuff. Is that all true? Yeah. And the thing is with it is, you know, if all of a sudden a child comes across the road or a cyclist or somebody runs a red light, you know, you might think you're fine, but then if you have to do that emergency reaction, you don't, you can't do it. Right. It's the same for alcohol. Bang, you know, and that's why you get in a crash mm-hmm. is because you're, you know, you don't have all your senses. And even when you're driving sober, no influence of drugs and alcohol, there's situations you get into, you know, where the reaction time is very minimal, you know? Right. And if you, if you had a couple of joints or, you know, a couple of drinks, the difference between that, you know, two feet where you stopped and if you were under that influence, you wouldn't have stopped. Yeah. You know, it's the, the line's that, that narrow. And, the more your level increases, both with alcohol and cannabis, then the risk of being in a crash goes up substantially. Mm-hmm. It's just, uh, it sounds so uh, obvious when we talk about it like that, you know? Um, so what, what about Mad Canada's role in all of this? I mean, I know when, when I was uh, fortunate enough to be in that meeting and hear you talk about this and, and some of the things that, that Mad Canada is doing. So I would imagine now at this point that you guys have really ramped up in terms of your role that you play. So tell me a little bit about that. So we, we're kind of involved um, in, you know, two ways, big time. So we're, you know, at the Senate saying, pass the bill, let's, you know, move on this impaired driving, get the police trained, get -hmm. the equipment out there, let's get the messaging out there. And to the provinces, we're saying, just like alcohol, you need to step up the sanctions, you know, for police, you know, so that it's not all criminal code charges that you can suspend their, you know, license because, you know, the provinces have those powers. You can impound vehicles. And, you know, sometimes what the provinces do is much more effective because it happens immediately and at roadside than, you know, an actual criminal code charge. So, 
you know, we're encouraging the provinces to be active. We want all provinces to have a zero tolerance to 22. On the educational side, you know, what we're really basically focusing in on is, as you said earlier, it's really difficult, you know, if the government is a seller of cannabis to be, you know, messaging around time and, you know, because it's very easy for government just to say, don't do it. And, you know, nobody's going to criticize them for that. So we really, you know, um, have taken a responsibility to kind of say, okay, let's, if somebody uses cannabis and might drive, that's the people we want to message because mm-hmm. they're the most they're the most likely people to do this activity. Right. And so we, you know, um, and if the biggest thing that we can accomplish over the next year, if everybody takes four hours after they've consumed, you know, with all those conditions and not drive, you know, this thing might come off and we might be a lot of we might be a lot safer than what the U.S. states have not done. You know, so there's an opportunity here uh, for Canadians to show how we can do this and do it in a responsible way. Hmm. That now that's something I hadn't considered. You know, (laughs) I I haven't even thought about what the U.S. is doing or not doing. Um, What do you know about that? Are they are they have they done anything related to the driving issue? Well, you know, the, the problem in the U.S. when you look at their data is if you kind of look at legalization and post, it's alarming numbers. Mm-hmm. But you got to be careful and you got to be honest about this. I don't think they did a good job of measuring before legalization. So what we're seeing now, was that there all the time? Or just because you started to measure it, right. all of a sudden <clears throat> it seems like a huge spike. So that's problematic in the U.S. Their laws are terrible. They don't use oral fluids. It, it really, you know, there's no real police enforcement that is an effective strategy. And so I applaud our federal government that they've taken, you know, the best science, the best technology, and said, we need this if we're going to legalize it. Yeah. And I think the problem is because we're doing it across the country and there's a federal approach because these states did it, you know, by a referendum with not support from the federal government. Right. They've kind of done it in an ad hoc basis and nobody really thought about it. And when I talked to some of my colleagues in the States, like they had to rush because the whole focus was we voted for this. The date is this. We've got to start selling it. Mm. And I don't think they did a good job putting the public safety network around it. Yeah. Is there an equivalent to Mad Canada in the U.S.? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. We, yeah. So um, they're there. But, you know, again, it's very hard to have strategies when, you know, the federal government in the U.S. is saying this is a legal product. And then, you know, anything that's federal in a state where it's even legalized, they they can't sanction it. So if you're on a, you know, university, for example, that's federally funded, there's no cannabis that can be used anywhere on oh, that facility. Yeah, right. So you've got all that type of stuff interlaying. I, I don't think that most people understand it to the depth of it. Yeah. And, uh, you know, and... 
I, I also think there's, you know, every one of those states is private sales. And I, you know, personally believe that the government does a better job of selling cannabis or will do a better job of selling cannabis, just like they have on alcohol. And I think that system protects Canadians as much as people grumble about it. It's the safest way to sell. Yeah, I mean, I think you'd you'd get a lot of folks who want to debate that idea for sure in the same way that a lot of folks probably would think to your earlier point that Canada is kind of rushing because Trudeau said he would make it happen and now we've got to make it happen. But I, I think personally, I tend to agree. I mean, I think a lot of the decisions that have been made have been made from the perspective of this is the safest thing we can do in the amount of time we have to do it in. Um, and from that lens, I think what you just said makes makes a lot of sense. But having said that, I mean, what do you think Canada is ready for this? Like, do you think we'll be be ready to roll sometime this summer? Well, I, I think the problem has been that now that the Senate's playing politics with the bills, that that's really hurt. So the the always the envision of you know the the federal government, the Liberal Party was to have the impaired driving bill in place long before legalization. And quite frankly, the Senate has screwed that all up. And so now it's kind of like they're almost kind of pushing through the Senate at the same pace. Right. So it makes no sense to pass them, you know, within days or weeks of each other because then they're going to play politics and said 45 should be delayed. Well, then at the same time, you got this whole infrastructure, you know, whether it's government or, um, you know, private sales that's been working feverishly, you know, initially to July 1st, and that's been pushed back. Um, And they kind of don't know what's going on. So it's kind of like, um, yeah, I feel a lot more comfortable if there was a good size gap, but being reasonable I don't think we're going to be able to achieve that. And that's going to be a mistake. It's going to hurt um, the ability for police to kind of be up and running. Mm-hmm. And so they might not be as ready as they should be in 2018. That's no fault of them. But, it, you know, by 2019, you're going to start to see the system uh, ready itself. Mm-hmm. Um and I just hope we don't have a lot of tragedies in between. Yeah, yeah, agreed. So, Andrew, how about you? How do you feel about the legalization? Well, I, I think that, I, you know, I respected the way the government did it. I, I thought the people appointed to the task force, making the recommendations, did a really good job. I think there was a good debate uh, in the House about the pros and cons and the safety networks in there. I can tell you that the experience in Washington state with the black market, Mm -hmm. you know, um, 75% of people move from the black market into buying it from licensed stores. And so that's really a good indicator from our U.S. Um, states that have legalized that some of the goals of the government is to remove the black market. So if that happens here in Canada, that's great. Right. Um, And if we can, I'm a little disappointed that uh, more provinces didn't regulate it 
like they do for alcohol right off the start. Like if you kind of look out west, it's mostly a private market. Right. Not sure how that's going to go. So I do have concerns. Um, you know, I I would have preferred the models in you know Ontario, Quebec, Nova Scotia, New Brunswick, Prince Edward Island. You know where they're kind of using you know much more government intervention yeah. and control. So if something goes sideways, at least the intervention can be there. Yeah, they've they, they've uh, they're using an existing infrastructure to, to control a, a restricted product, I guess. Yeah, and and they've done a you know I mean science says and the research shows they've done a good job on alcohol. Yeah, yeah. And the private you know system hasn't. And there's documentation to prove that too. So mm-hmm. this isn't just Matt or me talking about this. There's evidence to show that. Yeah. Well, Andrew, look, uh, it's uh, it's been a pleasure chatting with you. I feel like we could go on for a while, uh, and I and I appreciate you taking some time to chat with me about this, as I you probably spend a lot of time talking about this. So <laughs> I appreciate you doing it once again. It's been very interesting, and uh, I suppose we'll see how things pan out. and uh, And I want to thank you for all the work that you're doing, regardless of cannabis and but just uh, driving impairment in general. and uh, And so thanks for that, and thanks for joining us today. Well, thanks for the opportunity, and uh, you know, and we'll, uh, all the listeners out there, if you can, you know, take away one message, you know, don't drive after you use cannabis for at least four hours, and if you see somebody driving poorly out there, call nine one one. Let the police handle that situation. Amazing. Thank you, sir. Okay. Bye bye. Thank you. Bye bye. So I enjoyed that chat with Andrew. Um, you know, I was I was actually excited to talk to him, the CEO of Mad Canada, an organization that's been around for quite a while. And frankly, I think we're lucky to have in Canada, looking out for all of our best interests. And I guess that's one of the first things that surprised me is the differences, um, once again, highlighted from this perspective this time uh, between Canada and the U.S. And um, interesting to hear his thoughts on what he feels is going right about how we're handling things so far in this country, despite what any of us might think. Um, I loved when he talked about being the truth broker. You know, this idea of saying that it's not enough to just say you shouldn't drive. We have to be realistic about those things. And I do think there is some risk in that. I think there's risk in people. And and he sort of acknowledged it. But the risk in people maybe not knowing where their tolerance is or knowing where that line would be for them. And I suppose in the interest of that, not knowing the best thing to do is is not to drive. Um Again, just the wealth of info that that Andrew seemed to have, and I think that's what first got me interested in talking to him on this show. When I heard him talking about this stuff in a meeting, I mean, here's a guy who's so passionate about the reason that organization exists in the first place, but the amount of information that he had related not just to alcohol, but now, of course, the introduction of cannabis into uh, our lives. Um, all the myths, all the information, and the, and, the, and the information that he has no doubt analyzed over all the years to, um, to form his own opinions and therefore their actions based on what's about to happen next. You know, the oral fluid device, this idea that you're going to have to, uh, you know, swab your tongue. I mean, it's, it's all very interesting stuff. Uh, it'll be interesting to see, as Andrew said, how those things, the laws, the limits, and, and how we adapt to things once it gets legal. And once we see how people uh, behave after that, um, 
you know, I, I just continue to, to, to wonder how things are going to play out once, once that happens. And, you know, with any luck, we'll still be here talking about it then. And maybe perhaps from a different perspective live as, as things, uh, roll out. Uh, so again, I wanted to, to thank, uh, Andrew for joining us. I, I quite enjoyed that, uh, a different tone for the podcast and certainly a lot of information that I know I found pretty interesting. So stay tuned in a couple of weeks when we'll have another very interesting guest all the way from Los Angeles, California. Mary Jane Gibson will be joining us. She is the former culture editor, I believe, of High Times Magazine. Now, for any of you who know that magazine, it's basically the Rolling Stone magazine of the cannabis industry. And she'll be talking about all kinds of things related to that world, her views on how, uh, what she thinks cannabis will have, the impact cannabis will have in Canada, and of course, what's been happening to them in California since things went legal there. That'll be in a few weeks. Uh, So thanks for listening. This is Turning a New Leaf, produced by the Village Soundcast Network. I'm your host, Sean King. We'll see you soon. This was a Village Soundcast Network original production. 